We're going to go to Acts 15. Here the title for the sermon this morning is The Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council. This is a marquee text. This is an important chapter. This is an uh, incredible opportunity we have this morning to dive in to at least the first part of the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, verses 1 through 21. Here's what we read. Luke writes this. He says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all of the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they, were, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that my mouth, that through my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy of reading about this incredible gathering of the Jerusalem Council to delineate the question of what must I do to be saved. We're thankful for the clarification that Peter, Paul and Barnabas, and James gave as they articulated the truths that we're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. I pray that this council and their discussion would bless us today as we consider the seriousness 
of what's at stake and that we would likewise be quick to be gracious, to have conversation, but to be firm and rock solid on what the gospel really is. Bless this time, we pray in your word, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the progress of the gospel has often been hindered by people with closed minds. They like to stand in front of open doors and block the way of others. In 1786, when William Carey laid the burden of world missions before a ministerial board in Northampton, England, he was spurned for wanting to take the gospel beyond the borders of the civilized world, as they thought, maybe, all the way to India. The distinguished Dr. Ryland said at the time, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Unfortunate, he would have that position. More than one spirit-filled servant of God has had to enter open doors of opportunity without the support of churches or religious leaders. Paul and his associates faced this same challenge at the Jerusalem Council here in Acts 15. At various times in its history, church leaders have met together to settle doctrinal differences. For example, historians recognize no less than seven ecumenical councils in the first several centuries of the church's existence. And of those seven, the two most significant would have been the Council of Nicaea in year 325 and the Council of Chalcedon in 451. At those councils, erroneous teaching about the person and the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ was condemned. And the biblical position of Christ's deity and humanity were carefully defined. As important to those, as those councils were, all seven and particularly those two, the Jerusalem Council was the first and the most significant of all. This gathering of church leaders answered the most monumental question that could ever be asked. What must a person do in order to be saved? And the apostles and elders successfully resisted the pressure to impose Jewish legalism and tribalism on the new Gentile converts. And with great clarity, they denied that circumcision is a part of salvation. They affirmed once and for all that salvation is holy and completely by grace through faith in Christ alone. And with the doors being opened wide to Gentiles to come into the church, some of the more stoic and stuffy Jews were not liking it one bit. In fact, they were disturbed and they were feeling even threatened as Jewish believers. And many believed that Gentiles who wanted to become Christians had to first become Jewish proselytes. That is, they thought that they first had to become Jews before they could become a Christian. And so they were shocked and overwhelmed that so many Gentiles are now pouring into the church without observing circumcision, without following the Mosaic law, and they couldn't believe that pagans could now enter the church and immediately be on equal basis with other Jewish believers. This just seemed unfair to those who had devoted their entire lives and all their culture to keeping God's law. They also feared that in an increasingly growing Gentile influence that all Jewish culture, traditions, and influence would be altogether lost. And so given those concerns, conflict was bound to happen. 
It was understandable and even inevitable. As long as Gentile converts were few and were already somewhat intermingling with parts of Jewish culture, that might be okay, but by the time the Jerusalem Council took place that we're looking at this morning, it was about 20 years after Pentecost. So things were starting to come to a head. And the issue really was not, can Gentiles be saved? It's not the issue that we're talking about this morning. The issue that we're talking about is could they enter the kingdom of God directly without coming through the old covenant? That was the question that the council gathered together to sort out. And so this morning, let me give you three headings as we examine this important important question together. We'll look at number one, the dispute, verses one through five. What's the argument all about? Number two, the debate. We're going to see a staunch defense from both Peter Paul and Barnabas and James, and then we'll lastly, shortly look at the decision, and we'll have to catch up on that one a little bit more probably next time together. So let's start with number one this morning, the dispute, verses one through five. If you are taking notes, that first blank says, certain false teachers from Jerusalem came to Antioch teaching legalism. That's what's happening here in verse one. But some men, verse one says, came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now in chapters 13 and 14, if you'll remember, Paul and Barnabas were on their first missionary journey and they had incredible success as they had seen God save many Gentiles on the island of Cyprus in Perga, and in Antioch, which is in Pisidia. They also witnessed God saving Gentiles in Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. They had seen Gentiles come to Christ from Pamphylia and Attilia. And when they returned home to the sending church was Antioch of Syria, they gathered the church together. And the last thing we read before we break from our verse-by-verse sequential exposition was in verses 27 and 28 of verse 14. Look at it with me, if you will. They came back In verses 27, 28 says, they arrived and gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. That's where we left off several weeks ago. And while this should have been a clear transition to the new covenant ministry of the gospel, there were some of those who were opposing God's work And some of these Judaizers from Jerusalem came to Antioch and they were teaching, as verse 1 says, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they start to get when Paul and Barnabas are back. They're rejoicing all these Gentiles got saved, but we're not hearing anything about circumcision. And we're not hearing anything about dietary law. And so they can't really be Jews who are saved unless they come in through the old covenant. So these self-appointed leaders from Jerusalem most likely still wouldn't participate or eat or share in the Lord's Supper with some of these fellow Gentile Christians for this very reason. And so their teaching and their actions posed a great threat to the truth of the gospel as well as to the unity of the church. And the danger of deep division between Jew and Gentile was very real. And so this no doubt caused an uproar in the Antioch church, which is just outside of the outskirts of of Israel and the Gentiles who thought they had already been saved by faith in Christ alone were now being told that they had to be circumcised in order to be a true Christ follower. But wait a minute, Jesus never taught circumcision. 
Paul never taught circumcision. Peter never taught circumcision. You won't find that anywhere in the Gospels that somehow you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. So what's going on? Why is this all of a sudden being taught by these Judaizers? Look at verse 2. Your next blank says Paul and Barnabas had a big debate with these false teachers. So they're not going to let these false teachers take over. In verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so being the good shepherds that they were, Paul and Barnabas are like, hey, not so fast. We are not going to allow you to bring in the Judaizing thought that circumcision and the Mosaic law is somehow part of the gospel. They want to confront this legalism, Paul and Barnabas. They, they were ready to fight ferociously for the truth and to defend against false doctrine that was trying to sneak its way into the church. And it's not surprising that there were people in the Jerusalem church who were strong advocates of the law of Moses. And after all, you have to remember, we're in a time of transition, the book of Romans the book of Galatians, the book of Hebrews had not yet been written, and so they're still trying to consider these things. So it's a little bit understandable that this kind of debate is going on. All transitions can be difficult. What were these legalists actually doing, and why is this so dangerous, you may ask? Well, they were attempting, just to summarize it, they're attempting to mix law with grace. They're saying that, sure, we believe in the resurrection, but you still got to follow the old Testament law, Old Covenant law, Mosaic law, you still have to follow some of these ceremonies, some of these dietary restrictions, and to be circumcised in order to really be brought into a good standing with God. They were attempting to mix law and grace and to pour new wine into the ancient brittle wineskins. They were, in effect, attempting to stitch up the veil that had been torn in the temple from top to bottom when Jesus died. They were trying to block the new and living way to God that Jesus opened when he was raised from the dead. They were rebuilding the wall between Jews and Gentiles that Jesus had already torn down on the cross. They were putting up heavy Jewish restrictions. This passage says a Jewish yoke on the Gentile sh shoulders. Uh, they were asking the church to move out of the sunlight of the full revelation of the gospel and back into the shadows of the Old Testament illustrations that were always pointing to Christ. They were in effect saying a Gentile must first become a Jew before he can become a Christian. Or they were saying it's not sufficient to trust Christ alone, one must also obey the law of Moses. And this is exactly what Paul addressed that we read in our pastoral reading and prayer in Galatians 1.6. You remember I read through verses 6 through 10 where Paul said to the church in Galatians, I'm astonished, I'm amazed, I can't believe it that you would so quickly desert him who called you by grace and turn again to a different gospel. And he reminded the Galatian believers there's not a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some the Judaizers who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then Paul said, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking to approve 
uh, seeking the approval of man or of God? In other words, am I trying to pass the Judaizers' approval that they say, hey, now you're legitimate, or am I just sticking with what God says? Because if I'm trying to please man, then I'm not going to be able to please Christ. You can't serve both God and man. For Paul and Barnabas, everything was at stake. And that's why the leaders of the church of Antioch realized this is a big deal. You boys better take this back up to Jerusalem and y'all hash it out because we got to solve this issue. It is a big deal. And this isn't the only time it's been faced. Church history is full. Probably the Reformation would be the next major time this all surfaces in the 16th century. Martin Luther said that the doctrine of justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Luther certainly believed, as all Christians should, that the gospel of justification by faith alone was also so singularly important that it was essential to the New Testament gospel itself. And to remove yourself from the gospel or to add something else to it would be to fail as the church. And that's why at the end of the 16th century, the reformers believed that the Roman Catholic Church was not just another denomination, but that it was no longer a church at all. Oh, it still professed faith, the Roman Catholic Church, in the Trinity, and affirmed a host of Christian doctrines which are central to historic Christianity, but that one doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, on that one doctrine, Rome was disqualified. And Luther said that when the Roman Catholic Church, when they anathematized the doctrine of justification by faith alone, it anathematized the biblical gospel and ceased to be a church. Calvin used a different metaphor. He said that justification is by faith alone and it is the hinge upon which everything turns. A contemporary theologian made a different metaphor saying that faith alone is the atlas that holds up the whole of Christian truth. And if the atlas should, be, should shrug and be, uh, and be thrown away, that it would be cast to the ground, that that would be a death blow to the heart and soul of Christianity. That's what the Reformation was all about. The church was turned upside down then, and it was the worst schism in Christian history, history that took place. And in a similar way, this is the same battle that Paul and the first century Judaizers are facing. There's going to be a split. There's going to be those who go with Christ in the gospel, and there are going to be those who do not. And at the end of verse 2, we read that the church of Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas along with others appointed to go to Jerusalem to consult with the apostles and the elders about this question. That leads us to verses 3 and 4. Your next blank says, many rejoiced when they heard what God did on Paul's first missionary journey. Verses 3 and 4, so being sent on their way, that's Paul and Barnabas and a few others from Antioch to Jerusalem, they're on their way. They pass through both Phoenicia and Samaria and as they're passing through, verse 3 says they're describing in detail the, con the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Again, as they're journeying there, they pass through Phoenicia and Samaria, and they're encouraging them about how God specifically had saved Gentiles in Asia Minor, everything that we've studied in Acts 13 and 14. And this would have been a great encouragement, especially 
to the Phoenicians and the Samaritans, for they too were not pure Jews. And they're hearing a little bit more about the grace of God that had now saved these other Gentiles that are further out and dis, uh, re removed from Jerusalem Central. So it was becoming more and more obvious that the gospel of grace was being preached and responded to by many who were not strictly from a Jewish background. And so the conversion of those Gentiles is what brought great joy to these Phoenicians and these Samaritans. And then this delegation from Antioch finally arrived in Jerusalem, as verse 4 says. They were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. They were welcoming them, and they were glad to see Paul and Barnabas, for they had heard about how God was working through them mightily. And Paul and Barnabas were always giving all the credit and the praise to God and his work through them. And this was a great time for the church of Jerusalem to hear how these ambassadors of the gospel had shared about their strengths and their struggles, their triumphs and their trials, all for the cause of Christ. But unfortunately, not all were pleased. In fact, some were appalled at the report that the Gentiles were not observing the law of Moses. And we read about that in verse 5. Verse 5, some of the Pharisees, your next blank, still taught that circumcision was necessary. They just couldn't let go of it. Verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So they're saying, hey, we're hearing about this conversion. Everybody's rejoicing. What about circumcision? What about other old covenant mosaic law items? What do we do with those? And so they're, they're ordering them that you have to obey them. So it's very difficult in some ways to tell what is meant by believers in verse 5 because it does say there are some believers who belong to the party of the circumcision. I would say that it's possible that some of these Pharisees believed in the resurrection for they could not deny it, but they were so steeped in their legalism that they didn't believe that the resurrection of Christ alone could save a sinner, but that there was some combination of the cross and the law which were both required for salvation. This, of course, is a different gospel and therefore heresy and false teaching. Clearly, they were not true Christians since they taught that circumcision was required for salvation. But by mixing the works of the law with faith alone in Christ, they nullified grace. That's what Paul taught in Romans 11 verse 6. Romans 11 6 says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so we're understanding as we have the full treatment of this issue from the scripture that grace is only grace if it's grace alone. If it's grace plus anything, then it's grace plus some work, some effort, some human meritorious work that you do that earns you in the way to heaven. It's basically saying Jesus isn't enough. You also need something else to go with that. You need a little sugar in your coffee. Just drink it black, people. No, I'm kidding, I put sugar in my coffee. But the idea is you can't mix law and grace, it's grace alone. Well-known commentator R.H. Linsky writes this on this matter, quote, to add anything to Christ as being necessary to salvation, say circumcision or any human work of any kind, is to deny that Christ is the complete savior, is to put something human on par with him. Yea, to make it the crowning point. Linsky says, this is fatal 
a bridge to heaven that is built of 99% Christ and even only 1% of anything human breaks down at the joint and ceases to be a bridge. Even if Christ be thought of as carrying us 999 miles of the way and something merely human be required for the last mile, this would leave us hanging in the air with heaven being still far away. You can't have 99% Jesus, 99% grace, and 1% works. You can't have 999 miles laid by Jesus, and the last mile is laid by you or your effort. It's grace alone all the way. And this couldn't be more clear in the New Testament. Those who believe that any ceremony or ritual would play any part in salvation have really denied Romans 3.28, which says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So again, the Bible, the New Testament, is not shady or ambiguous or unclear on this issue. You have the gospel preached clearly by Christ and the apostles, and then you have Judaizers who are hung up in their Old Testament traditions and even added to true biblical Mosaic law, extra laws, and they're saying that you've got to follow their way in order to truly enter in. Uh, New Covenant believers have been freed from the unbearable burden of keeping all the Old Covenant law and must look only to Christ to be born again. And so now that we've seen the dispute, verses one through five, let's look at an even more thorough defense, verses six to 18, the defense. And we have three witnesses that are gonna defend the gospel of grace. Let's start with Peter, your first subpoint there, A, Peter reviewed the past, verses six through 11, and then we see number one, God chose Peter, so your blank is chose there. God chose Peter to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Look at verses six and seven. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by the mouth of the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So the apostles that Peter's talking about here would have been the original 12 apostles minus Judas, add Matthias, and the elders here would have been a reference that would have been the newly appointed leaders who were serving in a spiritually mature role, preaching and teaching and shepherding the flock. So they bring this matter together with the heavyweights, if you will, of those who are going to discuss what this issue is about and this matter belonged and it was to be looked into and discussed among these appointed leaders of the church. Please note that it wasn't discussed at large by the congregation itself as if everybody in the room has a comment to make and they would take a vote. It's more of like, no, the apostles and the elders are going to talk about this doctrinal matter and they are going to read and study the scripture and together come up with their statement, if you will, here at this Jerusalem council. This matter, again, is something that God's appointed leaders would decide and delineate on this explosive and potentially decisive uh, or divisive, I should say, issue. 
And so after the debate had gone on for a little while, Peter stood up. It's kind of like he's just going to let him talk, get it all on the table, talk about it. And then that verse says he stood up and he said, basically, you know, as Christians, you know, what, what, what we think about this. I, I just want to say when Peter stood up, I was thinking about, you know, um, there's a time as Christians that we want to be peaceful. There's a time as Christians we want to be patient and kind and gracious and try to agree with everybody. Like, oh, I see what you're saying. I kind of agree with that. And there's a time where you can't be like that. <laughs> when the false doctrine enters the room, you just say, no, that's wrong. That's of the devil. That defies the true gospel. And there's a time that you want to be nice on secondary and tertiary issues. And there's a time you have to be razor sharp on what it is that the Bible says about saving faith. And Peter rose up. There's this idea that he stands up, he puts his chest out, and he's like, I'm going to tell you guys something about this issue. And so let's look at what Peter says. He's, he, he's talking about here that at this point, Peter reminds the council of five important ministries that God had performed for the Gentiles, ministries in which Peter had played an important part. We already looked at number one. First, God made a choice that we see here in verse seven that by Peter's mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Remember, Jesus had given the keys of the kingdom to Peter and the other apostles in Matthew 16, 19, which in succession is passed on to the elders of any Bible-believing church, and the keys of the kingdom represent authority. And the keys of the kingdom represent that an elder, an apostle elder, has to decide who's in and who's out. And heaven agrees with what they say as long as they're standing on the scripture and not on the traditions of men. And so Peter has now wielded this authority and responsibility for, for uh, believing Jews in Acts 2, believing Samaritans in Acts 8, and believing Gentiles in Acts 10. Peter's involved in all of those. He preaches at Pentecost, you Jews who are born again, you can repent and be baptized. After Philip goes up to Samaria in Acts 8, they ask for Peter to be brought up. And when Peter comes up, if you remember, it's when he got there, he said, this is legit. Then they started speaking in tongues and they got saved and baptized. And it was Peter that God used in Acts 10 to talk to Cornelius. And he got saved and started speaking in tongues. So Peter's always involved in the early transition here to say, that's legit, that's legit, that's legit. So he's saying here, that God's using me as the anchor of, of the church the leader, if you will, of the apostles in the initial uh, church, time of church history. And Peter has already, even though some of this has already been brought up, say like in Acts 11, when Peter first got back from uh, Caesarea, some of the uh, Jerusalem church had questions about it. And we went through this in Acts 11, 1 through 18. And Peter made it clear at that time that Cornelius and his household were saved by hearing and believing in the gospel, not obeying the law of Moses. And so the first act here, again, we're just looking at number one, that God chose Peter to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And then we can look at number two, God gave as evidence of saving faith the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. This is Peter's next argument, number two, and God, verse eight, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So how do you know if somebody's saved? Well, in today's terminology, we would say, well, they got to bear fruit. We got to watch them over time. If they continue to walk with Christ, love Christ, do the things that Christians do, it gives us a little bit more confidence that maybe they're born again. But that's not how God determines if somebody's saved. According to this verse, God looks at their heart 
He knows all things, and when he saw, for he's the one who gave new life to these believers, verse 8 says, he gave them a gift, and that gift was the Holy Spirit. And that was determined by God at the time of salvation when then they spoke in tongues, which was an outer sign or wonder to confirm that these guys are saved right now. We don't have to wait a week. We don't have to wait a month. We don't have to wait a year to see whether or not they bear fruit over time. If they spoke in tongues at that time, Peter, in a sense, was saying, look, they've already got it because God gave them the Holy Spirit that was made manifest to all of us. That would not happen if they weren't truly born again. And God's the one who knows their heart. That's what he's talking about there with number two. Let's move on to number three. God made no distinction in salvation between Jews and Gentiles. Verse nine, God made no distinction. Here's what he says in verse nine. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So in a sense, Peter is saying that God has erased a difference. I mean, for centuries, God had put a difference between Jews and Gentiles. They were to be separate And this was the task of the Jewish religious leaders to protect and maintain that distinction. But that's now changed because we're moving from the old covenant to the new covenant. And in fact, Jesus taught this in Mark 7, 1 through 23, when Jesus taught that the Jewish dietary laws had nothing to do with inner holiness. Jesus said in Mark 7, 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but things that come out of a person are what defile him. So in other words, you're a sinner based on your depravity and you're not going to be made righteous based on what you observe with your dietary laws. You're going to be made righteous by Christ. And Peter had learned that lesson again when he had the vision on the housetop in Joppa, Acts 10. Remember the sheet came down from heaven, had all kinds of animals in it, clean and unclean. And Jesus said, rise, kill and eat. Peter said, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And what did Jesus say? Did he say, yeah, you need to observe dietary laws? He said, no, don't you dare call unclean what I've called clean. Don't call it common or unclean. I've said kill and eat. And this was a a picture of what he was about to experience with Cornelius doubling down that ever since the work of Calvary, God makes no distinction between Jews and Gentiles as far as their sin. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles as far as their sin is concerned, then there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles as far as salvation is concerned. It's only by faith through grace in Christ. This is Romans 10, 9 through 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter's saying, look, that distinction, it's gone. It's been erased by the blood of Christ on the cross. We have now entered into the new covenant. And he moves on, gives a fourth argument. God did not place the same yoke of the old covenant upon the Gentiles, verse 10. Now, therefore, Peter's just waxing eloquently, giving point after point after point. Now, therefore, verse 10 says, why are you putting God to the test? 
by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. When the verse says, why are you putting God to the test? That phrase means it was not their place to challenge or question God's ordained means for salvation. In other words, it was for God to decide what was necessary for salvation, not for them. And God had revealed the requirements for salvation through his word. And circumcision was not part of the new covenant. So there's no reason for them to follow the Mosaic law. This description, in fact, in verse 10 of the Mosaic law as a heavy chafing yoke was an accurate one. Describing the legalism of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 4, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Here's what he's saying. Even the Pharisees can't keep all the laws. In fact, they pick and choose which ones they want to keep, like Corbin, but they don't tithe dill and mint and cumin, or they, 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 they do tithe dill, mint, and cumin, but they don't follow the heavier things of the law, like honoring your parents in that argument. So in other words, the Pharisees had added all this stuff. They're not able to keep it. And yet now they're telling the Gentiles they have to keep it, really just as a rule of order. We were here first. We have control. You'll do what we say. But not even the Pharisees could keep it. And so the law was indeed a yoke, heavy mantle that you would put on the back of an oxen, a farming analogy. It was a heavy yoke that burdened the Jewish nation, but that yoke has been taken away by Christ on the cross. Just why Jesus says, in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, he's like preaching to a Jewish audience. They're trying desperately to follow Pharisaical law in order to be saved. And he says to them in that context, Matthew eleven twenty eight, he says, come unto me, all you who labor in your heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly at heart, and you will Find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In that context, he's saying you can't be saved by following the old covenant. You can't be saved by being a good Jew. You have to come through repentance and faith, and it's by grace that I will give you. I will impute to you the righteousness that will save you. It's a work of God through grace. Remember, the Mosaic law was given initially not to save the Jewish nation, it was given to protect the Jewish nation from the evils of the Gentile world and the pagan lifestyles and to prepare that Jewish nation for, for coming through them would be the Messiah, but the law could never purify a sinful heart. It was never intended to save anybody. It was to be a guardian. It was to be a tutor. It was to be a teacher to say, hey, these are some great ways to live and God has commanded it. However, you can't do it. You can't follow it fully. You can't be saved by it. I'm gonna send a redeemer. I'm gonna send a lamb. And it's through his blood that you will be saved. It's by faith in the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ that one day you'll be saved. And all along, that's what God intended, and yet the Jewish nation confused that and just thought, well, we have to keep this to be saved, and we got to add extra laws to protect us from breaking those laws, and so that's the way to get in, and so there was this heavy burden. I mean, it was depressing 
to be a Pharisee because if you're saved by works through their law, you have to follow all of this or you're not going to make it into heaven. We understand that's not what the New Testament teaches. Again, the law could never purify a sinful heart. That's what Galatians 2.21 says. It says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If we can somehow be saved through Old Covenant, then why did Christ come? Why did he die? Why was he raised again if you could still be saved through some Old Covenant mentality? What the law could not do, God did through his own son. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans. I know I'm giving you a lot of cross-references and we don't have time to look at all of them, but look at Romans 8, Romans 8, 1 through 4. Here's maybe a summary of it. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's like, hey, if you're in Christ, you're not condemned. The law, old covenant law does not condemn you. It does not condemn you. Not if you're in Christ, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the law brought sin and death, but Christ brings freedom in the spirit of life. Verse three, for what God has done, uh, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Christ did obey the law perfectly. He was already perfect. He obeyed the law perfect and his righteousness was now imputed to our account that we can walk today in the law of Christ, in the law of the new covenant, not in the old covenant, and that freedom we have only because of what Jesus has done. So those who have repented and trusted in Christ alone have received the righteousness of God by faith. They're not earning salvation, but are recipients of salvation through faith alone. And as Christians, we want to walk according to that law of Christ in the law of the new covenant. Let's lead us to our fifth ministry that God did among the Gentiles. Number five, the fifth thing that Peter talks about here, God saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus for the Jews and for the Gentiles. He's saved by faith through Christ for both Jew and Gentile. Look at verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. So Peter's saying, hey, we believe as Jews that have been saved by believing the resurrection that that's how we were saved, by believing the resurrection alone. It's by faith in Christ. And if that's how we're saved, we believe they'll be saved the same way we've been saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace... We've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You can't boast in any obedience or anything you've ever done. You can only boast in Christ. You can only boast in the fact that he gave his only son who died on a cross that you could be born again and that you could be saved. Why are we arguing about what it means to be a Christian? It's all by faith in Christ. And so since keeping the law couldn't save a Jew, how in the world would keeping the law save a Gentile? If you as Jews couldn't even keep the whole law and you weren't saved by the law and it was a heavy yoke for you and we couldn't follow it all, then why are you making the Gentiles do the very same thing that we weren't able to do? Again, the law shows us our need for Christ. It's a teacher and a tutor that points us to the grace of God. And so Peter closed his speech with a ringing affirmation of the glorious truth that salvation is solely by grace. 
So Peter sits down, if you will, and next Paul and Barnabas stand up. Verse 12, Paul and Barnabas reported on what's going on in the present. Peter's reviewing the past from Pentecost up through the present. And now in the present, what had just happened, verse 12, Paul and Barnabas are going to talk about their trip. And so when all the assembly fell silent, they listened to Barnabas and Saul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So number one, we could just say Peter's witness did make a great impact. That's why verse 12 starts off there at the very beginning. There was this silence. I mean, Peter stood up and said it. I mean, what else needs to be said? Peter just said it all right there. It was the kind of realization that maybe, you know what, Peter's right. I mean, what could we possibly say that would refute Peter, the lead apostle and anchor of the church? And it was this very argument of salvation by grace that was the pillar and the buttress of the truth. It was the foundation of our Christian faith. So they kind of just kind of fall silent there. They don't have much to say because you can't refute what Peter said. And then look at number two, Barnabas and Saul were greatly respected by the church. Right there in the middle of verse 12, it says they listened to Barnabas and Paul. So they wanted to hear what they had to say. I mean, the Jerusalem church, they had known Barnabas for a long time. Remember back from Acts chapter 4, Barnabas was a generous man. He was a gracious man. He had given gifts. He was, he was an encourager. That was what his name meant. He, he was somebody that they all trusted. He was kind with people, but he was firm with the truth. And he had really earned their respect when he went up to check out Saul's conversion to see if it was true or not. And he's the one who brought Paul then back into the church. And there was a lot of love and appreciation now for Paul and his passionate preaching and his fearless faith. In fact, glance down here in chapter 15, look at verses 25, 26, shows us this respect that they have for Paul and Barnabas. It says there, it seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who had risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that the church of Jerusalem, they had a lot of respect for Paul and Barnabas. So they heard what Peter had to say. Paul and Barnabas now have something to say. And let me just say this, and we'll have to wrap up here and finish this message next week. But if the main emphasis that Peter gave was on the gift of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, remember, by the believers in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, then the main emphasis that Paul and Barnabas are going to give are on the miracles that God did through them. Verse 12 specifically talks about their emphasis here is on the miracles that God did through them. That's your next blank. Number three, the miracles. Look at the end of verse 12. As they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Peter said, look, these guys got saved. They're speaking in tongues. Paul and Barnabas said, well, let me tell you a little bit about our trip. Because in our trip, once we preached the gospel by faith in Christ alone, that we also saw God doing miraculous signs and wonders. If you remember on that first missionary journey, God did many miracles among them there in the land of the Gentiles. The first was in Acts 13. Why don't you just go back? We'll look at these three miracles that we did and then we'll be done for this morning. Look at Acts 13, 9 through 12. Here's the first miracle that they're referencing here. When Eliamus, the magician, opposed Paul in Salamis and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. You remember this, Acts 13, 9? But Saul, so there was, a, there was a magician who is partly Jewish and he doesn't want the Roman proconsul to become a believer. So he's trying to distract and divert and, and say other things. And here's what happens, Acts 13, 9. But Saul, who had also been called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, this magician named Elymas, and he said to him, you son of the devil, 
You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And so when the proconsul saw this miracle, verse 12 says, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So this miracle proved that God was for and behind Paul and Barnabas, not behind this Jewish magician, and God used that miracle. You're not saved by an external miracle. You're saved by faith in Christ, but the miracle is bringing affirmation to the authenticity of the message that Paul and Barnabas were preaching. A second miracle, look at chapter 14, verses 8 through 10. A second miracle was the miracle of the crippled man who was healed at Lystra, again, on their first missionary journey, about halfway through. They're at Lystra. There's a man, verse 8, sitting, chapter 14, verse 8. There's a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, which indicates there's some acceptance of the gospel, there's some leaning into real belief, real faith in the real God, and he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. Kind of reminds us of John 9, the man born blind, he couldn't see from birth, Jesus did this miracle, only God could do that. Paul here heals a man, the power of God through him, heals this man who was born crippled, he had never walked, which shows there's no amount of physical therapy that would ever heal this man. It was a miraculous work of God. That's the second miracle. A third miracle that Paul and Barnabas could be talking about if you look down at verses 19 through 20. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on to, with Barnabas to Derbe. We call this a miracle of resuscitation. We don't believe that Paul died, that he was just weak and maybe passed out, but God resuscitated him and gave him enough power and energy physically to where a day later he was able to walk some 20 miles to Derby. Now, all of these miracles, Paul and Barnabas' argument is this, all of these miracles gave proof that God was indeed working in them and through them for his glory. And it was because of the God of the gospel that these signs and wonders were being performed in the Gentile area of Asia Minor. Now, if Paul and Barnabas were somehow preaching a half gospel, then God probably would not have affirmed them by enabling these miracles to take place. But it was because they were preaching the full gospel that God did come alongside them and these miracles were happening in these areas, specifically in the area of the Gentiles. They had preached grace, not law, and God had honored that message with these miracles. In fact, look at Galatians 3.5. Galatians 3.5 says this, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works in miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You know what he's saying? Hey, I gave these miracles because you're believing by faith in the gospel. If you had been doing works, I wouldn't give you any miracles. How many miracles were happening to the unbelieving Jews who believed in works? Zero. How many miracles were being performed by the believing Christians who were preaching grace alone? A whole lot. And so that's Paul and Barnabas' argument. The miracles themselves testify to the fact 
that it was God's work through faith that this was being done among the Gentiles without any adherence to the Mosaic law or to circumcision. So Paul and Barnabas rest their case, then steps up James, and I know you want it, but you're gonna have to wait till next week, all right? James is gonna get up. He's gonna quote from Amos in the Old Testament. We're gonna talk about the millennial kingdom, the salvation of the Jews, and then a letter that they write that gives a clear doctrinal statement about sexual immorality, about about uh, observing, uh, not eating meat strangled or with blood, and there's just gonna be all kinds of good stuff that we're gonna look at next week. If you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sin, this whole message was aiming to make it clear that you can only be saved by grace through faith. If you're here and you're thinking that you're gonna be saved because you're a good boy or a good girl or a student at the master's university or you've read the Bible or you've heard all of MacArthur's messages, God does not care about any of that. But God cares about your heart. And he cares about what's going on on the inside. And he cares that you this very morning, no matter how many times you've heard the gospel preached, would examine your own heart in light of the truth of the gospel of grace and say, you know what, am I depending on my own works or am I depending by faith alone in Christ? And if I'm living by faith alone in Christ, am I seeing God do miraculous things in my own sanctification by truly setting me free of ongoing sin, not only the penalty, but the presence of sin so that I'm walking a victorious life that would honor the Lord Jesus Christ because it's all grace. I have a responsibility to walk in obedience to the law of Christ, but I also am leaning on grace to save my soul and grace to aid me in my sanctification that I could walk with him. And so if you're here this morning and you're struggling, with any type of ongoing or besetting sin, after we sing our last song, so after communion, we'll sing a song. We'll have a few people standing right here. We'd love to talk to you about what your struggle is and how grace can help you. If you're here today and you don't know Christ and somehow you've walked in and you're just like, boom, I just now sing for the first time that it's all faith in Christ. It's not about my church. It's not about my baptism. It's not about believing in the resurrection. It is about the resurrection, but I'm just saying the Pharisees believe the resurrection plus works. So it's the resurrection alone. Make sure if you're believing in the resurrection, that is the only work that can save you. Nothing else can be added to that. And if you've been adding anything to the resurrection, then you have been believing in a different gospel. And therefore, you are condemned. And I'm inviting you this morning to be saved by grace in Christ and his work alone. That's you this morning. We'd invite you to come. But for now, let's close in prayer. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, look into this somewhat complicated argument. But it really is clear, Lord, as we examine each person, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, next week, James, just discuss with incredible precision what it means to be saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, if there's somebody here this morning and they have never seen or understood this, we pray that you would open their eyes and that you would open their heart and that they would realize that it's not about being good or being a law-abiding citizen or being sincere that would ever save anybody from hell, but it's only through the work of Christ on the cross, perfect life, his death, his resurrection, that you would be pleased today to open the hearts and the minds and that you would bring saving faith to someone who's tired and weary of keeping the law in order to be saved. God, this morning set us 
free. I pray for those who are walking by faith, that we would walk by faith every day and that we would be motivated based on the grace that we've read about this morning to not rest in that grace as a hammock, meaning we're getting lazy and not putting forth any effort, but that we would strive to walk in obedience, not in order to earn our salvation, but as a, as a reflection of the beauty of the blood of Christ that cleansed our hearts and our souls, that this, just reading this, would both confirm true saving faith through the gospel and motivate us to walk in obedience, that we would have sweeter marriages, that we would have more obedient children that would walk by faith, that we would have greater sacrifice, and we would see that sacrifice as a joy, as a privilege as we serve here at our church, and that we would be bold to stand up like Peter did and just say, you know what, I'm going to let the conversation go for a little bit, but it's time to say something. Give us the wisdom and the, and the courage in the present world that we live in to stand up and say, this is what the word of God says, and I'm not going to falter. I'm not going to relinquish that responsibility, and I'm willing to pay the price culturally for any, any stand that I take for the Lord Jesus Christ. Be glorified now as we prepare our hearts to take communion May it be a time of thanksgiving, time of, of uh, confessing sin, and a time to commune with the Lord Jesus and with those around us as we participate in this together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.